This is a Peace Talks special. Highlights from the Peace Talks radio series. Miracles are possible, and I don't mean miracles in a sort of heaven's opening way, but the common everyday miracles of people doing amazing things. Stay tuned to hear from people who are working to bring peace to their communities by promoting nonviolent conflict resolution strategies in daily life. Hear practical suggestions on dealing with common conflicts, like handling angry customers at work. When a customer is irate, hear them out. Don't engage. Don't have nonverbals with your arms crossed in front of you that say, I'm tuned out, I'm not listening. You'll hear ways to diffuse the power of bullies in our schools and why it's important. 60% of kids who were bullies in middle school have a criminal conviction by the age of 24. Also today, thoughts on bringing civility back to political discourse and finding the power to forgive the greatest of human transgressions. All that and more today on Peace Talks. Peace Talks. It's the name of a series of programs broadcast on public radio station KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that tries to elevate the work of peacemakers into the spotlight. And when we say peacemakers, we apply a broad definition to anyone whose efforts help us all to address the conflicts of our daily lives in a nonviolent way. I'm Paul Ingalls, the producer of the program. Our thinking is that if we can help people bring more peace to their own circle of human experience, there can, in fact, be a ripple effect that reaches more broadly out into the world. One good place to start is with our primary relationship with a married or dating partner. Being in a relationship is an ongoing workshop in conflict resolution, or it is if it's to be a healthy, growing relationship, according to Jackie Woods, a life teacher who runs the Ottawahi Institute in Columbus, North Carolina. We asked her what kind of work would she recommend to someone who's looking to establish a healthy primary relationship. I would have people make a list of what they want, and then I would have them examine that list to see if they have those qualities. We think we do, but oftentimes what we're looking for, say if a person wants unconditional love, they may be a very critical person themselves, and they're going to have to claim that quality for themselves before they can attract it to themselves. And, and once we've claimed it and have it, we don't really need it outside, but it's when we don't really need it from somebody else that we get it from somebody else. Then the neediness goes away because one of the main culprits of a, of a relationship is to come in with all your neediness and expect that other person to need, meet all your needs. That happens more than any of us would like to admit. Even those of us who've worked on relationship for a while, that will come up periodically. You see that needy part, I need for you to give this to me. I need for you to be this for me. Depending on people's temperament, aggravation, even anger can come up. What ideas do you have about dealing with the anger when it gets to a hot point? It needs to be defined ahead of time how you're going to handle those hot points. For me... For a long time, um, my husband absolutely couldn't handle it when I would get very angry. So I would say, I'm very angry. I need to take a walk. <laughs> and I would take a walk. That was that was a way for me to internally get in touch with it and release some of it so that I could come back and talk about the issue rather than just dump all my anger on him. Uh, that was defined ahead of time. And if I would forget, he would remind me. Um, 
so you can't just wait till the moment of and then do whatever your pattern of of dealing with it has always been. You've got to, again, define for the relationship what works for both people. So there's no one answer. Some people can yell and scream at each other and get it all out, and they're very cool with that. Other people can't. So you need to know how the two of you can deal with one person or both people's anger. And it may be defined differently. For if one is angry, it may be defined differently in handling that anger than if both people are angry. So there is no one answer, but it does need to be defined ahead of time. Any tips for the partner who's not angry about how to not let that activate something in themselves so that it turns into a shouting match? The way anger is presented can help. You know, I I preface what I say is, you know, I'm this situation made me really angry, but I recognize this anger is mine. And that makes it easier for the person to listen to me in that I I need to talk about it, I need to get it out, but I know it's mine. I'm not blaming somebody. I'm not accusing somebody. I'm owning that it's my anger. And then there's a tendency, too, in couples to try to fix it, one trying to change the mood, maybe not the most appropriate thing to do. That's that's deadly for them to try to fix it. <laughs> but that is common. That's very common. Um, if they try to fix my anger and appease it and and make everything smooth again, I don't get a chance to go all the way through the anger. So you can be guaranteed it's going to come up again. It doesn't get to be healed. It just gets to be pushed aside for a little while. Jackie Woods is founder of the Ottawahi Institute in Columbus, North Carolina. You're listening to a Peace Talks special. This edition of Peace Talks is a compendium of some of the more intriguing moments from our radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, aired on public radio station KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm Paul Ingalls with our show's host, Suzanne Kreider. Our goal on each show is to imagine a situation that often challenges us with conflict, and then talk with people whose work involves helping us handle that conflict in a nonviolent way. For example, when consumer meets merchant, Things don't always go smoothly. When you stop serving breakfast. No, no breakfast. No breakfast? No. Fine, I just want a couple of eggs. No breakfast. Cheeseburger. Huh? Shut up. I don't want a cheeseburger. Come on, come on, come on. Don't give me that. Come on, let's go, let's go. We're going to have thermal. We want a cheeseburger? Come on, everybody got a cheeseburger. You want a cheeseburger? Come on, cheeseburger. I, I, I want a cheeseburger. It's too early for a cheeseburger. Too early for a cheeseburger? Look. Cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. I'm Suzanne Kreider. By the time Americans are 12, most of us have begun consuming goods and services. By the time we're adults, most of us have worked in at least one customer service job. As either a consumer or a customer service rep, we've had unpleasant and sometimes very irritating situations that can turn into confrontations. Our guests today on Peace Talks are experts in customer service and consumer advocacy. We'll begin with Mary Cooley a human resources expert on customer service and employee turnover on how to prevent consumer conflict. I presume that you do role plays in these customer service trainings. What's one of the trickiest scenarios that you lay out? We do do role playing um, 
The one that comes to mind is what I call one with no options given. Uh, most often that involves, uh, I'll say, utility companies. Uh, this is it. This is when the provider or the customer service rep can be at your house, take it or leave it. Um, I think as consumers, we feel uh, cornered, we feel pinned, we feel um, defensive, and we come out lashing when we feel no options are provided to us. So what do you tell customer service reps to do when they don't have any options? Well, I, I do ask them to search within to really think about any possible options. For instance, I think how we phrase something can make a world of difference. Um, when you use the word do, for instance, it always leads to yes or no. Do you want this? Do you, want, do you not want this? If you say, what else can I get you? How else can I help you? Um, walk me through what specifically that person said to you on the phone. If you work to get in that person's head a little bit, you might be surprised at even the tiniest little options that are presented to you. In my mind, it's human being to human being. How do we want to be treated and work in your own job to try to provide that person with the service levels that you yourself would like to receive? Good. So talk more. We can see now the importance of open-ended questions versus closed questions. What are some of the other basics of giving good customer service? Well... There's been a lot of studies recently that talked about what we want as customers, and I found this interesting. The two things we want most as customers are, one, give us accurate information. Um, If if you are the um, person at the utility company that should know approximately when that person's going to be at my house, tell me when that person will be at my house. Tell me specifically what they're going to do while they're in my home. I really appreciate what you said about accuracy, and I want to tell a story about a miscommunication because the customer service rep thought he was being accurate, and I thought I was understanding him, but I was totally misunderstanding what he said. All right, so here's what happened. I had a pair of high-heeled shoes, and you know how the, um, it rubs off on the back of your heel? So I took the right. shoes to a shoe store, and I said, and I held the shoe up, and I showed him where it had rubbed off, and I said, I would like this heel replaced. And he said, okay, we'll replace both of those heels, and that'll cost $15. And I thought it was really a great deal because they were like navy blue leather shoes. Mm -hmm. So I thought he was going to replace the leather. So I came back a week later, and I said, I'm here to pick up my shoes. And he he got the shoes and showed them to me, and the leather was still ripped. And I said, no, I asked you to to replace the heel. And he pointed to the little plastic tips on the bottom of the shoe heel. And said, that's what I replaced for $15. I totally went nuts. I was screaming at the top of my voice at people. And actually, the last thing I remember is somebody behind me in line said, I think we should call the police. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, I just totally lost it. So he was being accurate, but I was completely misunderstanding. Right. So what does a customer service rep do when they encounter somebody like me who's just lost it? Well, I think the worst thing people do is... is embattled that customer is, lady, that's not what you said, or I I fixed the heel, what more do you want? And I think we've all been in those situations. I really do like the acronym that we use in training, which is HEAT. First, when a customer is irate, hear them out. Don't engage. Don't have nonverbals with your arms crossed in front of you that say, I'm tuned out, I'm not listening. So just hear them out. Let that person voice however they have to voice their concerns. The next one is just empathize with them. If that were happening to me, how would I feel? 
try to live for a moment in their shoes. <laughs> Third, and I don't think this happens nearly enough today, is say, we're sorry. I'm sorry. We're sorry. I'm sorry this occurred to you. Again, be sincere about the situation. And T, the last one is, okay, so what? Where do we go from here? Take responsibility for what occurred. I can, I can tell by what transpired here that you're clearly not happy with, with the shoes. It's important that I get this right. Here's what I am able to do. Here's what I'm willing to do. Take responsibility, ownership for it. Okay. Get it fixed. Customer service expert Mary Cooley on Peace Talks with host Suzanne Kreider. While it's a challenge worth taking on to practice peace in our daily encounters, like in the shopping malls, there are people who are driven to take their concern for peace to a larger stage. Kathleen O'Malley and Eric Sorotkin are two examples. In 2003, O'Malley, a psychotherapist, visited Iraq both in the days just before the U.S. invasion and after the war began. She also traveled to the occupied Palestinian territories. Meantime, Sorotkin, a lawyer, traveled to North Korea not long after George Bush identified it as part of the axis of evil. On our show featuring these two, Suzanne asked them how they decided to make such dangerous journeys. Uh, this is the, the famous peace gene question. <laughs> uh, is there a peace gene or is there not? Uh, I imagine that's a show unto its own. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know where those moments really where people get those types of experiences, but certainly it is the power of some people doing something that leads to other people doing something. And what I mean by that, I was uh, young during the uh, Vietnam demonstrations, but I went, my, I went with my parents, actually, and an aunt and uncle in 1969 to some demonstrations, and I was 12 or 13. I was 13, I guess. And then uh, I went myself in 71 and 72, and to these mass demonstrations, hundreds of thousands of people, and it has an impact on on you that is something you don't forget readily. You know, if if I could respond, because I really agree with Eric that the movement of others being with one another, of like-minded folks working for something you believe in, is so powerful and encouraging. And I, I feel like I'm at a different point in a way right now that the Vietnam movement was powerful because so many of us in small numbers, then larger numbers, and it feels like, maybe this is presumptuous, that we actually made a difference, that we helped, in fact, stop that war. And I, my discouragement right now is, what, on February 19th, how many millions of people hit the streets around the world against this war? And so far... It's not had a lot of impact. But I don't think that impact is something we can measure quantitatively. And I believe that we don't ever know what the impact we're having is on that. You know, I, I, I've sort of gotten into this notion of the energetics of protest lately, <laughs> where I believe that uh, I, I'm not always out on the street to get the objective that I think in my head I'm going to object, get at that time. I'm there because I'm going to have an impact on something, and I'm there because the person standing next to me, the other person out there of the two of us maybe, that person may go on to be a senator, a congressperson, own a business, treat someone fairly just as a result of that one experience. And so peace seems to bubble up in places that are very unexpected. And we can't focus on the end result always because 
I, you know, some things are just either not in our control, either practically, politically, or spiritually. But they are um, they are really uh, uh, an unknown sometimes. But we know why we're doing what we're doing. And, and maybe the fact that we know why we're doing it is reason enough. Mm. Um, I agree. I, I what I was trying to say is that I think I have to let go of the consequences. I know I always tell this story, but it really is one I hold on to about my little Zen bird, who starts off on a long flight across a massive country, and. As the bird flies, sees a little wisp of smoke off in the distance and flies more and more. And the story is long because the the land is huge and the bird is tiny. And finally, as the bird approaches a huge billowing smoke and recognizes that there's a monstrous fire that's destroying the land, the bird turns around and goes back to where the bird started because there's a little teeny pond where it goes down and gets a drop of water to start the flight back to the fire. And I remember hearing that story and being so disturbed by it. The Dharma instructor at the end of that story said, and this is how you must live, knowing it won't make any difference, and you have to do it anyway. And I I think in moments and times like this, at least for me, I keep carrying that drop, knowing it probably won't make any difference, and I have to do it anyway. And, you know, Suzanne, in this kind of situation with North Korea, for example, I found that uh, even progressive people are very uninformed about what's going on in North Korea. And frankly, what we discovered was shocking as far as the misperceptions that exist about starvation, about, you know, an intimidated population and other things like that, that we did not discover in traveling hundreds of kilometers around the countryside in North Korea it's so shocking what we heard. So I agree with Kathleen. When we come back from this trip, the difference that we can make is either in a broader sense with the media sometimes when you can get them to listen, but also the one-to-one contacts that you have. People have told me when we've come and given them this perspective that they felt so refreshed to hear a different approach. Some people felt the pressure just drop. You could see it in their face. Oh, thank you for just someone doing something to a situation that seems so impossible. And I remember I was in Koreatown in Los Angeles after and gave a talk there on a a panel. And this woman came up to me after, and she's, thank you, she said. She said, it's so refreshing to hear things like this. We never hear this. Lawyer Eric Sorotkin and psychotherapist Kathleen O'Malley both live in Albuquerque and both took their piecework into the heart of global conflicts. You're listening to a Peace Talk special with compelling excerpts from previous programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Some say one reason we don't hear much about peacemaking in the modern media is that the media seem overrun with content that appeals to our fears instead of our hopes. The effects that this trend may be having on us was the subject of a two-part Peace Talk special that included Albuquerque Journal pop culture columnist Leanne Potts and media literacy expert Bob McCannon. The irony is that the media never tell parents to what extent the research shows the level that watching violence makes kids more aggressive and, more importantly, desensitizes them to the pain and suffering of others. The research on that is just mind-boggling. And it's important to recognize that 
the Hollywood PR machine criticizes this on the basis of saying, well, it's just correlations. The bottom line is that that information is not getting out there. Kids are learning to resolve conflict through violence. And I believe it carries over to citizens are thinking in this country that the way to resolve national conflicts is through huge military budgets and through sending those troops off to fight wars where video game kind of weapons are used and come back and they see it on TV. Leanne, what's your sense about how media impacts people's ability to resolve conflict? I think you learn conflict resolution skills from many sources. Media is one. It's a powerful one. Um, I think you need to, if you're not making the human connections in your lives to learn, to learn some of this, uh, the fault is with you. I mean, there are other ways to learn your resolution than what Rupert Murdoch tells you or what you know, a newspaper headline writer tells you or what Dan Rather tells you. I mean, come on. The world's a lot bigger than that. What motivates people to learn those skills, though, on their own? Caring about who they who they are and what their impact is on the world. Caring, caring. If you just want to be entertained and you just want to sit and watch, then no, you're not going to do do any better. But I mean, if you care about making the world a better place, if you want things to be differently, that's what's going to motivate you. If you want to keep, if you want to continue to be a, a very violent nation, and I might add that we've been a violent nation long long before there was television, radio, and video games, we were a violent nation. I mean, we have it written in our constitution, our right to bear guns. You know, we, we, t- we take our, our weapons real seriously in this culture. I, I would argue that maybe this culture has never been real good at conflict resolution. Maybe that's a skill we've yet to master. So, Bob, in addition to the war, you know, a lot of surveys suggest that TV news, for example, really focuses on crime stories. And they won't cover other stories unless there's some kind of conflict or some kind of violent scene. Um, does that kind of policy have some tangible effect on our understanding of how conflict can be resolved? I don't work in TV news. I work for its rival print, so I should put that out there before I bash them. But TV news runs very, very heavily on ratings, and they have to be entertaining. That's why they run so much about crime. I mean, it's entertaining. People want to hear about that stuff. And, you know, the things about a you know, peace march or a wonky story about someone telling you why the war was a bad idea – just you know it's not really entertaining well how do you think print is doing they could do better we, we do better than tv because we have more space I mean, they've got to fit everything in what 17 minutes they've got of airtime. we at least have a little more space we're doing better than tv but probably not as good as we could how do you think print media could do a better job in terms of educating folks on conflict resolution uh cover more groups that work to alleviate these kind of things you know domestic abuse groups Child abuse groups. There's a lot of education groups out there. You know, put a little bit more money into the, the social beat. Have a reporter who covers this stuff and talks about these groups and educate people about how to you know, navigate conflict. Again, these are unsexy stories. They're not going to be on, out front, you know. One of the things um, that I think that the print media could do would be to point out the difference between print media and television media. It always amazes me that the print media never points out that. When you're reading, it's happening in a different part of your brain. It's happening in a more analytical part of your brain. You have a, a layer of symbol system interpretation between you and the violence. And that when you're watching violence on TV, that it's happening in the oldest and most powerful part of the brain. And therefore, um, you know, not only are print media much more informative than the televised media, but they also don't have as direct and powerful an impact 
upon people in terms of their um, their aggressive nature and their appreciation of aggression. And I think that print media ought to do more to publicize that fact. Do we run a disclaimer that says this is not a TV? How do, how do we oh, – it, it just uh, seems so obvious to me. Of course we're not television. Well, I talk to 50,000 people a year all over the country, and I will guarantee you that most people don't know that. That a newspaper is not a television – is it a television broadcast? That a newspaper is much different than a broadcast in the way people perceive it and process it neurologically. And the effect that it has upon them and their children is much different. That's Bob McCannon of the New Mexico Media Literacy Project and newspaper columnist Leanne Potts. We also took our questions about the media and peacemaking to a panel gathered at a special conference put on by the Institute of Noetic Sciences in 2004. In a moment, we'll hear from the Institute's president, James O'Dea. But first, writer and media activist Dwayne Elgin comments on the suggestion that the media, with the many violent cop shows and sometimes mean-spirited competitive reality shows, are really giving consumers what they want. There's a whole, there's a huge number of people that have essentially turned off of the mainstream media because it isn't serving their more mature interests. And I agree that uh, programs like Survivor do uh, draw on our more adolescent interests. Um, I do want to speak to the, the issue are we really getting uh, what we want? And um, I think a, a very important case study is the experience of ABC television when they almost gave up Ted Koppel and his program Nightline in favor of David Letterman. And it turns out there were far more people that were actually watching Nightline uh, than David Letterman, but nonetheless they wanted to replace uh, Nightline with Letterman because the people watching David Letterman were of a demographic segment. They were younger. They were more affluent. They, would, they were more appealing to advertisers. Uh, and there are a number of examples like that that indicate we're not really getting what we want. We're getting what the advertisers want and we will tolerate. And if there's a program, let's say, about, uh, let's say, peacemaking in the world and looking at the the roots of terrorism and poverty, for example. Um, There are a number of SUV manufacturers that will just decline to uh, put their uh, ads on that kind of program or a hamburger uh, producer uh, and such. They'll say, well, that's not quite right for us. So what we're seeing is a conflict between the advertising community and its values and the programming needed to uh, sustain and support uh, this new world. And uh, we're in this very awkward transitional time. Uh, But I think we can move towards a media system that will actually give us what we want, but that requires citizens to uh, stand up and give feedback. James, you said that the media seems increasingly preoccupied with being a recorder of evolutionary error rather than a recorder of evolutionary shift and emergence. But are you actually asking the media to change human nature, to have us be more interested in, in peacemaking and wisdom practices and consciousness? Yes, the you know we were talking a moment ago about the reality shows, and that's such a you know wonderful mischaracterization of the word reality. I was in Chicago for a talk, and I saw on the front page of several newspapers in Chicago the face of the person who had won in the Donald Trump show reality show so-called. Well, in this reality show, Mr. Trump not only gets to manifest and demonstrate 
you know, crude capitalist arrogance and ruthlessness, he also, in the reality, gets to promote his products and uh, his, his new business enterprises. And so to me, it is a graphic example of the media saying, this is what it looks like at the end of this particular form of consciousness. You know, it, 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 it is its own documentary of what Sarah Van Gelder of Yes Magazine was saying earlier in our conference, of a dying paradigm, of a dying meaning system. That is something that, you know, as, as we've talked about in this conference, we have to be careful for. People are using the word media trauma and, and damage to our health because it is, it's like an, a force of entropy that if you wish to go with it, it will pull you down into its own form of collapsing meaning. But isn't that part of the challenge? People want to be lulled into passivity. They want to rest. So it sounds like what you're trying to create in terms of this shift, we would actually need to develop a desire for people to be awake. Yes, beautifully said. Uh, a desire to live and to be and to create and to feel that you are a participant in the real reality show. Isn't that an extraordinary thing that people might actually want that? And the answer is yes, that's the real evolutionary news that people will want that. Leanne Potts, what can media consumers do? to change the face of media, to, to see more representation in all media of peacemaking values. Vote with your dollars, first and foremost. Don't go see Rocky 12. Don't go see Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Don't watch Fox News Network. You know, I mean, don't vote with your dollars. That's the language these people understand. And you know, go see the movies you do care about, that do, do represent values you want to see, see your children and your children to see. And how about in terms of print media? Is there anything consumers can do? Once again, vote with your dollars. Write your paper. Write them and tell them what you want to see. Call them. Tell them what you don't want to see. Same with your local TV station. and Participate. Bob McCannon, what can media consumers do to change the face of media? Well, I certainly agree with Leanne's notion of voting with your dollars. And I think that too often people are so passive when they consume media Take an activist stand. Um, we've had 960 people take our four-day catalyst training, and we've tried to get each one of those people to write letters, not only of things they disagree with, but write letters of things that they agree with. Yes, by all means. We always write, hear people who are unhappy, but if you're happy, write. For example, it's been shown that if you write a letter saying that I really loved this whatever, Touched by an Angel episode – well, those positive letters have about ten times the effect of negative letters. Um, Internet can be a terrific way. Most people belong to listserv nowadays. And we have had our catalysts stop an amazing number of outrageous things simply by getting lots of emails generated to certain corporations that were doing outrageous things. The, the airlines used to always play R-rated movies in the main cabin of the airlines. And one of our catalysts, Diane Samples from Connecticut, she started an email campaign. And within a month, she shut that down. And you don't have little kids watching R-rated movies in the main cabin of 
of airplanes now. So whatever the odds are, I think that we have to become activists nowadays, especially in this crucial issue of peace versus war and images of peace or images of war being the dominant ones in not only our culture but in our little kids' heads. You are listening to a Peace Talk special featuring just a few of the intriguing topics and conversations presented on our series about peacemakers and nonviolent conflict resolution. Studies have shown that exposure to violent and aggressive images on television can lead to aggressive behavior in children. The media may be one of many factors that lead to bullying behavior among children. On a recent Peace Talks program, we talked with a nine-year-old friend we called Amber about her experiences with bullies, which stimulated our conversation with Lucinda McConnell and Bill Jordan, who both work with bully prevention initiatives in New Mexico. What's your definition of a bully? When you ask them to stop, um, but they won't. There are some movies where bullies are kind of framed as to be like they take your lunch money and stuff. Maybe some people would, but um, most bullies in my class, they just won't stop doing something. Lucinda, how would you define bullying? Well, I like what Amber said. Um, They don't stop because what they want is power. Um, I guess my definition would be any nonverbal or verbal behavior um, where the motive is power and control and their desire is to intimidate others and to get what they want. When we asked Amber why children become bullies, she had an interesting theory. Well, there's this one uh, boy, I don't know his name, but he's been really mean to people in third grade. I just, I tried to avoid him. He's chubby, and people say he's really, really fat. And um, my mom told me that when um, somebody... Uh, hears that they're fat, they'll just be sad for about maybe three months. Then they think, well, if I'm, I have this much body weight, then maybe I could harm the other people with it or threaten them with it. Like, I have all this body weight and I could crush you. So, did he become a bully? Yes. Yeah. He has gone to... I don't know how many times, but he's gone to the principal's office a lot. And they said that he would get suspended. Lucinda, does that analysis ring true of why kids become bullies? Well, I think children that become bullies feel powerless in their lives, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. In this particular case, maybe he was feeling powerless about what his peers thought of him. His self-image was being impacted. What I think happens is that there's a lot of fear in bullies, but rather than learning to express the fear, what they do is they express anger. What's the fear about? Well, it could be that sense of powerlessness. I mean, maybe they're growing up in a home where they're being bullied or um, things don't feel safe in their home environment. There's a number of reasons, but it's that powerlessness that I think feeds the bully. Lucinda, what's the difference between how girls and boys bully? Well, I think just like Amber said, girls tend to use relationships a lot more than boys. Um, They threaten. They threaten to exclude. Um, Sometimes they'll spread rumors and talk about girls behind their backs um, to change their social status in their community. Whereas I think boys, um, more verbal and certainly more physical. 
it seems as though when girls bully, it the emotional impact impact is much deeper. And when boys bully, granted, it's still psychologically and emotionally very damaging. But when it's a physical bullying, the event actually ends. Whereas with girls, it just continues on in their relationship and impacts every moment of their day. And Bill, I would guess that there would be bullying in certain minority groups like kids who are gay come out as gays and lesbians. What have you all seen in terms of bullying with special populations? Well, I think we've seen it in in a couple of places, certainly with gay and lesbian students. Um, But you have to understand a lot of bullying starts very early on, and you can have kids in very early elementary schools uh, calling names like queer or faggot, something that they know is hurtful but has no connection to the kid's uh, sexuality Mm. or sexual orientation. So... Um, the intention is to hurt. The intention is to gain power over. And uh, kids know what hurts. And one of the most hurtful things that you can say to somebody uh, young in, in early elementary or middle school is queer faggot. They may not even know what it means when they're using the term, but they know it hurts. We've also seen it a lot um, in New Mexico, particularly with immigrant children, who I think have been the target of a lot of bullying. And I think there's, in in a lot of schools, there's a pecking order with regard to ethnicity. And uh, so I'm sure that occurs, whether it's African-American or Hispanic or Native American. It kind of depends on the population of that school and what those kids feel like they can get away with. And that old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's not really true, is it? No, it's not. I think names are actually more hurtful than the physical aggression that children have to endure. Lucinda, tell us a little bit about some of the strategies that you teach. You've got an acronym that has the six steps. Well, one of the things that we teach the children and the adults in terms of how to respond to bullying is we use the acronym HA-HA-SO. So the H in HA stands for help, and that's probably the most important one is asking for help if you're being bullied. And it could be asking a peer. We really encourage students in the elementary years to go to an adult and We let them know that if that adult doesn't help you, keep asking for help. Go home and talk to your parents. If that doesn't work, go to your grandparents. Keep asking for help until someone really does something. The A in the HA stands for assert yourself, and I actually teach the children how to be assertive, how what their body looks like when they're being assertive, what the words need to sound like, the nonverbal communication that needs to go with assertive communication. The other ha, um, the H stands for humor. And many times, and this is a much more sophisticated skill, so some of my younger students really kind of are challenged by it. But, but if the bully tries to intimidate you and your response is to turn it into a joke and laugh at yourself with whatever you know the put down or the name calling is, it totally deflates that bully's need for power and control. Um, the other thing um, in the in the ha is another A, and that stands for avoiding. And I remember Amber said, well, I just try to avoid the bully. And we talk about strategies. If you know that the bully's walking home at the same time and you know that they travel the same streets that you do, you simply wait 10 minutes before you leave the school so that you avoid the bully. So we teach real common sense ways of avoiding. And then the so... Um, The S in so stands for self-talk because I think many times once 
a child or an adult becomes victimized and they accept that victim role, that it really influences our self-talk language, the dialogue that we have internally. And so I help children become aware of what their self-talk tapes are saying and empower them so that they don't feed into what the bully is saying and reinforce it in their own inner dialogue. And then the last one is O, and that's own it. So that if a bully is making fun of a child that's got freckles, you know, they simply own the fact that they have freckles and they show them freckles on their arms and their legs and the backs of their ankles. And it's a lot like humor, but once again, it deflates the intimidation and that threatening component in the bullying. And many times it works. Albuquerque school counselor Lucinda McConnell. We also heard from Bill Jordan of New Mexico Voices for Children. Both devote their energies to reducing the problem of bullying in our schools. By the way, you can hear our entire programs on all these various topics at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Sadly, conflicts between young people, particularly those who become affiliated with gangs, sometimes result in serious violence and even death. And when a violent act is committed, it sometimes touches off a spiral of reprisals that leave even more hurt or killed. There was potential for that in Taos, New Mexico in 2003, when 22-year-old Eric Tallardo shot and killed three young men, including 26-year-old Jason Perea. Instead of promoting a continuance of that violence, the fathers of these two young men, Frank Tallardo and Phil Perea, began working together to help Taos youth find a way out of the cycle of violence. Both men rode down together from Taos to the Peace Talk studio in Albuquerque to talk with our host, Suzanne Kreider, who first addressed Frank Tallardo, whose son was killed by Perea's son. Talk about forgiveness. How have you been able to completely forgive Jason for any role he might have played in Eric's death? I know most people can't understand how I could forgive even so so quick. The way this came about is uh, after Eric's death, I started praying a lot. And I prayed for like three weeks to a month, just day and night. And one day I was walking out, out of my house, and it's like the Lord spoke to me and said, you need to call Phil Perea and tell him that you forgive the family, the son, Jason. So I did. I uh, did what the Lord told me to do, and I called Phil. We set up a meeting with his pastor and my pastor, because Phil's a Christian, too. So, you know, typically with violent crimes, it seems like it's difficult for the victim's family to forgive the accused, and particularly their family, much less collaborate together. So, Phil, tell us the story about how you two were able to create this bridge and work together. I got a call from Ben Maestas, which is my pastor in Taos, and told me that um, Frank wanted to meet with me. At that time, I got that phone call when I was in the office of uh, my son's lawyer. The lawyer said, don't go. And I said, why? I said, your son just finished killing his son. They're going to set you up, and they're going to kill you. I don't care what you think, but I've seen it so many times. They're setting you up. When I got out of there, the first thing my wife told me is that, you're going, aren't you? I said, yeah. I know Frank. I know part of his family. And uh, I want to meet with him. 
want to see what this man's got to say. When I showed up, we showed up at the church, Calvary Chapel in Taos. Frank showed up a little bit late and then uh, came in. And the first thing that came out of Frank's mouth was, uh, you tell Jason that I forgive him. And um, he was kind of, at the time, he said, I'm a little shaky, I'm a little nervous. But uh, what I want to know is, um, can you help me? And I said, sure. What is it you want? He said, I want to start a program for the youth. Well, let me interrupt you, Phil, because I'm curious, because we're going to talk a lot about the program that y'all are working on. But I want to go back to really the courage it took you to go to that meeting. I mean, you must have been a little bit worried if people were telling you, hey, he might retaliate. How did you overcome that fear? Well, for the first two weeks, I carried a gun. Everybody in town tell me, you got all the right in the world to walk into that uh, police station and ask for a permit, and they'll give it to you because your life is in danger. Not only from Frank, but there's two other fathers. And the first thing they said was, they're going to wipe out the Pereas. I'm the only Perea in Taos. And there's three families coming at me. You know, right after I got a peace of mind, I said, Lord, I hand everything onto you, my son, the whole situation. I put the guns away. I don't need them. And I said, uh, every morning, I wake up and I look outside and I say, what a beautiful day to die. If it was my turn, it'd be right there and then. I'll say, thank you. Why? You're just sending me home a little sooner. That's all. I'm not worried about death. So it's okay. You're really at peace. Yes. Well, Frank, talk about the possibility of retaliation, because it does seem like that's part of our culture, is that people would expect you to retaliate for your son. Well, the thing about it is <clears throat> I knew Eric really good. I knew I know that he wouldn't retaliate in that way. Uh, he wouldn't want me to, and I wouldn't want him to do it if it was me that was dead. I told Eric's friends at the funeral, at the burial, because I heard a lot of kids saying retaliation, and Eric was well-loved by a lot of friends. And I told him, no retaliation. I don't want no blood on my son's hands. And that's the way I've always felt about uh, myself, too. I'd never wanted any blood on my hands. You know, if somebody comes after me with a gun, I'm going to let them shoot me. I'm not going to try and, and shoot them back. I'll let them take me out. But that's just the way I grew up. And, uh, and those are my beliefs. Well, I'm really impressed with the with your religious beliefs that each of you have. And is that really re a requirement for people to forgive and for people to just trust without carrying guns? What do you think, Frank? No, it's not a requirement. Anybody could forgive uh, non-Christians, Christians, wh whoever they are, they, they should uh, learn to forgive. If everybody could forgive or learn to forgive, just think how this world would be. What do you think, Phil? Forgiveness is a healing process. Without forgiveness, I mean, you could get uh, ruined within yourself. Christians usually, and there's a lot of fly-by-night Christians, so-called Christians, you don't know their true colors until something in this occasion happens. If you really feel 
that you're backed up against the wall and say, Lord, help me. He will. And if you believe in any respect that it'll be solved, resolved without violence, it'll happen. And it'll start with peace of mind, peace within yourself, and saying, i got to work at it. But just to say, I forgive you, and turn around and be bitter, hate, and everything, it won't work. Let's talk about the violence rates, because you all have mentioned that. I know there are different reports about the high crime rates in Taos. And there's one at a website called homefair.com that says crime in Taos is four times the national average. So, Phil Perret, what do you think makes Taos more susceptible to violence? Lack of work. There's um, teenagers that come out, graduate. You don't have no choice except stick around and do nothing except get in trouble. If the work economy was higher in Taos, I could see them getting a job and staying busy within themselves. There's no hardly any work process going on for teenagers, and then they don't want to hire some of these guys, and if they do, it's minimum wages. And Frank Tolardo, did you grow up in Taos? Yes, I did. Okay. So how are things different? Uh, life is rougher nowadays. Uh, the parents need to get more involved with their kids. Uh, I'm even guilty of that myself. Uh, I should have been more involved in Eric's life. I tried to be sometimes, but he he had already uh, made too many friends, and he wanted to be with his friends. But I should have gotten more involved when he was younger. <clears throat> but uh, that's what I think would help a lot, is if parents got more involved Kids uh, see their parents for five minutes, they go home and eat and sleep, and and they're gone. The parents don't see them very much. Phil, tell us more about what the two of you are doing to improve things in Taos for young people. When we had that meeting in church, and I first talked to uh, Frank here, he mentioned something about doing something for the youth, not ping pong, not basketball, anything like that, but something they could work with their hands we came up with a solution of um, a body shop, a body shop where they could work with their hands and uh, be proud of what they built. Um, most of them guys are good at what they do. Take the Cholos, for, for instance, the lowriders. You know how much pride they put into them cars? Every bolt in that car has been gone over, and they uh, dress it up, and they take pride in what they do because they build it with their own hands, blood, sweat, and tears, you might want to call it. We don't have anything like that. How many times have you seen somebody say, I'm taking a mechanic school? Where? Phoenix, Arizona. Why can't it be Taos? Oh, I'm taking wood carving. Where? Phoenix. Why couldn't it be in Taos? And I feel you give these kids something to do with their own hands to get them off the street, you got something working for you. Phil Perea and Frank Talardo. Perea's son is serving 41 years in prison for the shooting death of Talardo's son. Yet Phil and Frank are teaming up to improve the future for youth in their community. Anytime there's a major election season, one of the predictable storylines is the harsh negative tone of many of the campaigns. Why is political discourse in the United States so contentious and conflict-ridden in general? Are we stuck with it, or can citizens press for change? Suzanne talked with a panel to explore these questions on a Peace Talks program. Our guests included Albuquerque Tribune managing editor Kate Nelson, 
Dr. Gil St. Clair, a lecturer in political science at the University of New Mexico, and Dr. Guy Burgess, who's co-director of the Conflict Research Consortium at the University of Colorado. So, Guy Burgess, I have a question for you about the definition of civility. I found this definition from John Locke. He says, civility is nothing but outward expressing of goodwill and esteem, or at least of no contempt or hatred. Is civility about being polite? Well, that's a kind of narrow definition. I think if we decide that that's all it is, we will have really missed the point. I mean, it isn't civil to say, excuse me, please, while I stab you in the back. And civility also doesn't really imply an immunity from negative campaigns. Uh, You really need to be able to raise the tough issues. It's not a synonym for weakness either, Uh, though with this whole flap over sensitivity, I think it's being used tactically that way. What it really boils down to is a commitment to honesty and truthfulness and a genuine effort to portray the various issues honestly and not using deceptive kind of lying with statistics tactics. It also implies, I think, at some level an altruistic motive. It isn't pure selfish competition, uh, the notion that the invisible fist of pure competition will lead to good policy probably isn't true. Or actually, I should correct that. The notion that the invisible hand of pure competition will lead to good policy. The danger is that there's an invisible fist, and without some level of altruism and commitment to persuade one another, uh, you wind up making bad decisions. Kate Nelson? I find a lot of value in that. I I worry that when we bemoan the lack of civility in political discourse, that there's some sort of Pollyanna-ish desire for everyone to get along with everyone. And there's something very positive in the rough and tumble of politics. People do have widely divergent ideas, and they are valid ideas. We just need to figure out some way to carry out that rough and tumble debate and keep it on and on the issue. And too often, I guess, what we really are bemoaning is that we're talking about image, we're talking about the secondary issues, we're making up issues, we're diverting attention rather than focusing it on where it needs to be. Right. So focus on the problem, not the people. Mm. But it seems like so much of the campaigning is about this polarization of one personality versus another personality. And they're always described in real extremes rather than sort of in shades of gray. Hey, I'd like to get to a hopeful example. Um, It's run by the St. Paul Women's League of Voters, and it's called the Minnesota Compact. Um, The Minnesota Compact started in 1996. It was a project out of the Humphrey Institute and their Center for the Study of Politics. And at that time, they set a standard for four areas of political campaigns. Candidate debates, campaign advertising, media coverage, and also citizen participation. And we'll put more about this on our website so that you all can get the link to that. Listeners can find out more about the Minnesota Compact. But what they're doing is they're having very specific behaviors that they expect, not only from candidates, but also from the media and from the citizenry. So they're trying to hold each other all accountable for these different standards. And let me just read a couple of them to you. Um, 
Let me read one of the items on the citizen participation checklist. Let candidates know which issues you think are important and ask them to address the issues fairly and squarely. And Guy, that's really what you've been talking about, that we lose the substantive issues. Do you think this would work if people called up their candidates and said, hey, I really want you to talk about health care? I think if you had a significant portion of the electorate actively supporting something like this, it would go a long ways towards promoting more constructive political campaigns. Why is that? Well, I think that it changes the um, structure of the discussion. It removes some of the tactical advantage for what you might call dirty tricks campaigning, and it provides some real recognition and advantage to uh, politicians that take a more constructive approach. In a sense, what you're organizing is a political action cam or group that would support constructive campaigns on either side. And that would be a very interesting thing to try to do. And would each of you, I hate to say it, share a soundbite about what you feel is the most important piece to remember about improving uh, political dialogue. And we'll start with Kate Nelson, managing editor of the Albuquerque Tribune. Pay attention. Dr. Guy Burgess, co-director of the Conflict Research Consortium at the University of Colorado. I think the key is to focus on persuading others that your view of the world makes sense, but at the same time being willing to be persuaded yourself. Dr. Gil St. Clair, a lecturer in political science at the University of New Mexico. Well, I, I don't think I can improve on what Guy has just said in terms of, of uh, trying to persuade others that uh, you mean well and accepting the fact that they may mean well as well, and even though their views are different. We need, we need a trust and we need an acceptance of uh, the basic uh, good intentions of our fellow citizens if we're to have a civil discourse. University professors Gil St. Clair and Guy Burgess, along with newspaper editor Kate Nelson, on our program Seeking Civility in Political Discourse. Peace Talks is a production of Good Radio Shows Incorporated, a nonprofit media organization producing radio and online content meant to inspire, inform, and improve the human condition. You can hear the entire programs from which these excerpts were drawn, as well as many other shows in our ongoing series online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. You can also find out how to order CDs of this program or others in the series there as well. Plus, you can learn more about our organization and how you can help support this work at goodradioshows.org. That's goodradioshows.org. Thanks to KUNM, our production partner at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and to Allie Adelman, who composed and performed our theme. Also thanks to Suzanne Kreider, our show's host. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening.